Hey everyone, it's Perry. Since we didn't get to record a show this week, I wanted to record a bit of an audio diary of some of my experiences shooting the situation in Hong Kong this week. As many of you will probably have followed on the news, the situation here has deteriorated rapidly. And I have never seen anything in my life uh, like what's going on here in Hong Kong. And getting to photograph it has been harrowing, uh, but also really, really unique from the perspective of just capturing what's going on in a fairly historic moment, both for Hong Kong and I think probably for the world. Uh, so without further ado, here we go. It's going to be a little bit weird because it's just me. Uh, so bear with me and uh, hope you hope you enjoy it. So Tuesday, November 12th, 2019, the day after we recorded the last episode, uh, the transport gridlock at this point has spread to most of Hong Kong. Uh, there have been protests and roadblocks popping up all over the city with police activities going on everywhere. But today, the main focus has been on the Chinese University, which is a large university on a mountain in the northern part of Hong Kong. There are a couple of access points to the university, uh, which have been blocked off by protesters and students who have barricaded themselves inside. The police have been launching a day-long siege of the university and battling with protesters to take control of both the main entrance and a bridge uh, that leads into the university via a major thoroughfare. And I wasn't anywhere near this area. I finished work at around 8.30 p.m. and I made my way down to an area of Hong Kong called Causeway Bay, which for those of you who are familiar with Hong Kong, you'll know that it's one of the busiest shopping districts here and one of the busiest shopping districts in the world. But when I went down, well, normally I would catch a bus to go home after work and the entire area was a ghost town, which is very unusual because normally it's crawling with shoppers. So there wasn't any traffic moving and my hopes of getting my bus were fairly slim. So I went down to Sogo, which is near... Uh, sort of our equivalent of Times Square. There's literally literally a mall there called Times Square. And this is normally one of the busiest pedestrian crossings in the world. And today, well, tonight, it was completely empty, save for a group of protesters who had set up a roadblock uh, and also just a bunch of, you know, office workers trying to get home uh, and local residents on the street watching what was going on. So I walked around the area and I took a few photographs of the roadblocks, which at this point were mostly bricks and trash cans and things like that. But there were no police to be seen and I, I was kind of confused about what was going on. So I observed this for a little while and then nothing was really happening. So I left and I, I did a loop around the neighborhood. And when I did my loop around, I saw a couple of things that I decided to photograph. Uh, I, I had taken Johnny's advice and I was shooting with my Leica M240 and Sumilux 50mm spherical, uh, which worked pretty well at night. So I stumbled across a barricade that some protesters had uh, built further down the road to prevent the police from advancing on them. And the barricade was basically a bunch of trash and a few fences, and it was on fire. And this was the second time this week that I had seen uh, something on fire, essentially. So I, I photographed that, uh, and then the firefighters showed up, and I photographed their efforts to put out the fire, which they did quite swiftly. And I made my way back around the neighborhood. This time around... I suddenly turned a corner and there were dozens of protesters running in my general direction. They were running away from something. And I 
sort of hid for a little while, and then I went back to the Sogo area to see what was going on. And there were no more protesters on the streets, and it was all police. Uh, they had sent multiple police vehicles, and they were kind of occupying the road at this point. So I photographed the police from as close as I was sort of willing to go, and soon they started to leave as well. So I thought, okay, that, that was weird, but maybe maybe it's over. And I waited around a little bit, and soon enough the protesters returned to the area. And at this point, I realized what was going on, that they were doing a bit of a cat and mouse game where the protesters were setting up a roadblock, the police would then come after them, uh, the protesters would flee into the side streets and alleys, and the police would essentially just show up, clear the area, and then leave. There were a few efforts by the police to move some of the items in the roadblock, and they were they were largely being jeered by the crowd uh, surrounding the area. So as I made my way back down the road... I saw two things happen in a row. First, I saw a couple of police cars start whizzing towards the area where the protesters had returned uh, with their sirens blaring, and the whole cat and mouse thing repeated itself. But I thought, okay, you know, I've seen this dance. I'm going to try to find my way home. And I, I noticed that they were shutting down the nearby subway station in Causeway Bay. So as I as I walked down the road... I then saw a bunch of police cars coming from another direction. And I would say close to 100 riot police were getting off of their vans. And I saw not only the riot police begin to advance down the main road, but that there were a couple dozen raptors, the special forces, who were sprinting down the side streets. And I realized that this was their operation to try to catch some of the protesters. They were going to try to squeeze them from the sides so that when they ran away from the main roads, the raptors would intercept them. And this kind of thing has been happening sort of quite frequently in Hong Kong. And every time this chase starts, it gets really violent. The police often indiscriminately uh, go after not just protesters, but anyone who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They've gone after journalists. They've gone after first aiders. Uh, they've even tear-gassed firefighters. So at this point, when I saw the Raptors charging, I realized, oh, this is not a good situation, and I should go. But the subways were closed, and the roads were shut. And so I was texting a few of my friends who were at home and following live updates. Now, m most of the city's attention was focused on the siege at the Chinese University, where there were just some astonishing scenes coming out it looked like a war zone there were there was tear gas everywhere um the police were firing non-stop the protesters were trying to hold their line all the attention was there so all of these other protests that had popped up in other regions were not getting as much attention as the university and, and rightly so but my concern at this point was okay how do i get home and my friends at home told me don't go back towards uh, the main front line because of the police operation. And so I wouldn't be able to get to the next subway station in that direction. So I had to walk uh, west to the next subway station, which was called Wan Chai. So that, that walk was not super long. And by the time I got to the station, uh, when I finally made it into the subway, I, I sort of breathed a long sigh of relief until I got onto the train. And I realized that there are two st stations where I can switch to uh, the train that takes me home. But both of those stations are shut. And the next station afterwards is the infamous Prince Edward station, where on August 31st, the police stormed the station and indiscriminately beat up everyone who was down there. And the CCTV uh, footage from that evening has never been released. And the station has become kind of a flashpoint where protesters are convinced that the police killed people that night. The subway won't release the footage, so there's no way to verify this. Uh, and so there's a, a memorial at one exit, and there are constant standoffs, almost nightly, between protesters and police at this station. So I thought to myself, there's no way in hell I'm getting out at Prince Edward. 
Uh, so I got off at the station before all of the shut ones and try to catch a, catch a bus to go home. Uh, no such luck. There were roadblocks. There were no taxis. There were no buses. And so I started to walk. And as I started walking, I turned around and I saw one bus finally come that would actually go near my neighborhood. So I sprinted back uh, through the few cars that were still on the streets and just made it onto the bus in time. And my night still wasn't over, though, because as this bus was taking me home, uh, about two-thirds of the way there, it encountered another spontaneous uh, protest and had to stop because there was no advancing. So I got off and walked the rest of the way. That that night was the first night that I felt genuine fear uh, when I saw the Raptors charging and, and streaming down from their police buses because... You know, when you're around the protesters, they there isn't the sense of danger. They set up roadblocks. They vandalize uh, areas in a very targeted way. Anything that they deem to be pro-China or pro-government, uh, they will target. But everything else, they more or less leave alone. So it was only when the police started charging that I felt really worried and had to get out of there. But eventually I did make it home. Uh, and got some photos from that night and it was it was just one of those evenings where I was in a certain place at a certain time um, but the extent of Hong Kong's gridlock was really clear at this point Wednesday 13th of November schools had been shut uh, transportation remained shut down and a lot of people were working from home or unable to get to work. Uh, and there were sporadic protests still popping up all throughout the day. So I wasn't able to go to work. And I really wasn't able to work for this entire week uh, alongside a lot of people in Hong Kong. So what I decided to do this day was take a minibus up to a mall that I go to quite frequently. It's called Festival Walk in an area called Kowloon Tong. And there were two reasons why I wanted to go here. Number one, it's close to two universities, the City University and the Baptist University, both of which had set up their own roadblocks and uh, were becoming protest sites. The universities had largely been untouched in the last six months of protest in Hong Kong up until the last couple of weeks. After that university student was killed on Friday the... Oh, I don't even know the date. I think it was the 8th of... Yeah, Friday the 8th of November. The university started... The university students started setting up protests in solidarity to, to you know, remember their fellow student who had died. But the other reason I wanted to go up was Festival Walk had been severely vandalized. Uh, the reason why the protesters targeted this mall was not that it was close to the universities, but that there were a number of university protesters who were passing through the mall and there was a very, very aggressive police crackdown within the mall. And this was a first because it's not that common for the... Well, it wasn't that common for the police to enter private areas and shopping malls. They're doing it more and more so these days. But they, they went into this mall. They beat up a lot of protesters and there were... They dragged them into the parking lot. There were bloodstains all over the ground, uh, handprints on the walls. And again, the mall refused to re uh, release any surveillance camera footage of what the police had done that night. So the, pol uh, the protesters had targeted this mall. They started, they broke into it, uh, set fire to the Christmas tree that had just been put up and broke a bunch of glass. None of the shops, as far as I know, were damaged, but the mall itself and its infrastructure, its uh, entrances, its escalators were, were smashed. So I photographed a lot of this aftermath. It was quite, it was quite surreal to see. Uh, one photograph that I got was a image through a hole in some broken glass of 
a mall a member of the mall staff coming up a broken escalator with a chair and they were they were doing some repair work or some damage surveillance and uh I, I, to me that was quite a, a striking image this was all shot on film what i've been doing this week is in the daytime i've been shooting with my konica hexar rf and three three or four lenses uh, the 21 millimeter Voigtlander I've been carrying around, but I don't think I've used it. The 35 Summicron, the Fuji five centimeter f 2.8, which has proven an incredibly reliable little lens uh, for daytime reportage, and my Zeiss 85 millimeter f 4 ZM for those times where I need to get a little bit more reach. So after photographing the the mall, I then sort of walked around the roadblock areas, and it was it was fairly peaceful. The police hadn't showed up yet. Uh, the protesters were setting roadblocks. They were directing traffic in terms of where cars should go instead. And, and what they're trying to accomplish here is essentially to choke off the arteries leading into the universities because they didn't want the police to be able to besiege them like they did to the Chinese university. So after photographing this, I went home, uh, you know, developed my film, and that was, that was more or less that. At this point in Hong Kong, something really interesting was happening too. At around lunchtime every single day, office workers around the city would start pouring into the streets uh, and setting up spontaneous lunchtime protests. This was particularly noticeable in Central, which is the financial center of Hong Kong, kind of our equivalent of Wall Street. And at this point, it was a daily occurrence where you would see bankers and office workers uh, coming down into the streets and basically getting tear gassed. And it was the, the, the image of white-collar workers clashing with the police, getting tear gassed. There was one banker from uh, Citibank who... There's a video of him getting arrested for unauthorized assembly when he's by himself. So it's an assembly of one. And he was walking essentially through a little corridor to get back to his office. Uh, And the police intercepted him, pushed him up against a wall, searched him and arrested him for no apparent reason. And this marked a little bit of a turning point, I think, because even though there have been a lot of protests in the central area, they have never been... uh, The ones that have featured predominantly white-collar financial workers haven't really been targeted by the police. But now they were getting tear gassed on a daily basis during their lunch hour. And and that's that's quite a sight to see. I mean, I, I can't imagine... You know, imagine how weird it would be to see bankers flooding downstairs from Wall Street during their lunch hour and getting tear gassed by cops because they're protesting. It's, it's quite surreal. Thursday, November 14th. Today, there was another university siege that was beginning, uh, and it would turn out to become the longest and possibly bloodiest one uh, that we've seen yet. At the Polytechnic University, which is not too far from my house, there were roadblocks being set around the university. They had blockaded the Cross Harbor Tunnel, which passes right past the university, and it's a major access point, uh, one of three road access points from Hong Kong Island to the Kowloon area. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Hong Kong, The Kowloon area is sort of a peninsula that's attached to an area called the New Territories. If you compare it to New York, it would be kind of your, your, I think, your Brooklyn area, whereas Hong Kong Island is an island. It's like Manhattan. And so there's three tunnels uh, and subway and ferries that connect the two. There's no bridge. So as I went past Poly U, it was pretty quiet. Uh, the footbridges going into the university were blockaded. There were riot police on standby, but they weren't doing much. And I walked around to one of the intersections that would later become a huge clash point between police and protesters. But when I arrived, 
the protesters were just starting to set up their roadblocks. And I found a high vantage point to observe what they were doing. I stood there for probably a couple of hours. And it was, it was very, very odd because the atmosphere was tense, but nothing was happening. Uh, and it was overwhelmingly peaceful for the most part. Um, no, I, not even for the most part. Nothing, nothing happened. Uh, the cars that were, that were, that encountered the roadblock simply turned around and took another route. Uh, I didn't, I really didn't see any drivers complaining about it. I think they all almost understood or accepted that this was happening all over the city. Uh, a lot of them were probably sympathetic to the protesters. And, and then I, after most of the traffic had cleared and the roadblocks were set, I saw lots and lots of cars coming into the university and stopping at the roadblocks. And it took me a while to realize what was happening, but these were cars, private cars, uh, owned by ordinary citizens coming, you know, during their lunch breaks or in the early afternoon to deliver supplies to the students. And I saw these coming from all walks of life. There were cars, vans, even taxis, uh, trucks, uh, delivery drivers on their motorcycles, and just car after car after car came and unloaded boxes full of predominantly water, but other supplies that the protesters might need as well. Clothing, tools, uh, blankets, uh, all kinds of stuff. And it was quite a moving sight to see all of these people taking time out of their already disrupted days to come and deliver supplies to all the students who were blockaded inside. And that was sort of the first the first time I had witnessed the sense of solidarity in action. Because, you know, the protests in Hong Kong are often painted as a, as perpetrated by a group of radical rioters or uh, idealistic young students. But you have to remember that before the protests got violent, two million people took to the streets uh, in a peaceful protest that was ignored by the government. And, you know... Two million people out of a city of seven and a half million is a huge percentage of the population. And that doesn't include all of the people who didn't come onto the streets that day. And so all of those people are still, they still exist. Uh, some of them may have lost their support, may have stopped supporting the protest because of this disruption. But clearly they're keeping these students in their hearts and minds. And so that was quite a magical sight. Uh, and then eventually I left and I went home and develop my photos. Uh, nothing big had happened, but by the time I left, the police had started to besiege the area, but they weren't taking too much radical action. It seemed like they were more surveilling the area and trying to clear small pockets when they could. There was a, a, a looming sense of exhaustion uh, building up because it was coming on a week of blockade. Um, and this was all really triggered not only by the death of that student the week before, uh, but on the Monday morning when there were protests in, well, to protest the death of the student, one one police officer shot a an unarmed protester at around seven in the morning on Monday, you know, Monday morning rush hour, essentially. And that's really what triggered this week of mayhem uh, alongside all of the underlying anxieties. Friday, November 15th and Saturday, November 16th were relatively quiet for me from a photographing perspective because I was, I was getting sick. I caught a cold and uh, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Some of my friends thought it was exposure to tear gas residue and breathing in some smoke from burning barricades, but I, I think it's just a common cold. It's starting to get chillier in Hong Kong now, but these two days, the protests all around Hong Kong had continued. The blockades were still ongoing. The police were still cracking down. Uh, and in almost every neighborhood, you were seeing these cat and mouse protests with nightly scenes of police beating protesters, firing tear gas into residential areas. There were a few particularly egregious moments where police fired a tear gas canister through the window 
uh, of a residential building into someone's someone's flat, essentially. Um, and they'd showed a video of their kid getting, you know, suffering from the protests and their broken window and the tear gas canister. Uh, they had flooded entire neighborhoods with nonstop tear gas to the point where we have a term now, a tear gas buffet. Uh, that's essentially shorthand for when police are firing the stuff indiscriminately. You know, when the first instances of police violence broke out in June, everyone in Hong Kong was was fairly shocked to see the scenes of both aggression on the part of protesters, but more so the response from police where they fired 87 rounds of tear gas at uh, the protesters in Admiralty and Central. And 87 rounds of tear gas at this point seems like nothing because the police fired over a thousand alone at the Chinese university on Tuesday. And at this point, their total number is pushing 10,000 rounds fired. Uh, And that's not including all of the rubber bullets, beanbag rounds, uh, and of course, live ammunition that they've fired. So uh, these two days, I I mostly watched from home and I didn't really get a chance to go out and shoot because I wasn't feeling well. Uh, But on Saturday, the siege of the Polytechnic University really started to ramp up. Uh, It became increasingly violent. Uh, There were fires being set. There were uh, the protesters were using fairly medieval tools to try to fight off the police, Uh, slingshots and bricks and things like that. The police were pushing in quite aggressively with with their their constant volleys of tear gas from the outside. And it was it was one of those scenes where you could only really watch in horror because it was the worst kind of stalemate. The police would advance, the protesters would fight them off with their own projectiles, uh, Molotov cocktails. The police would back off and then fire nonstop tear gas and rubber bullets and things towards the protesters. They would back off a little bit and then the whole saga would repeat itself. And so the entire Saturday night, it, it felt like a repeat of the siege that it had happened uh, at the Chinese University. Um, then that that essentially went through the night, uh, but because nothing, no sort of progress was being made, no one seemed willing to negotiate or back down. Um, it, it was a stalemate. Sunday, November 17th. I thought it would be a relatively quiet morning after an entire week of clashes. Uh, There was supposed to be a relative lull in protest activity, and I was feeling a little bit better and wanted to get some sunshine, so I decided to walk outside and photograph some of the aftermath uh, of the the night's clashes. I was specifically trying to see if I could get a view of the damage around the university, Uh, but also some of the economic impact. A lot of retail stores have closed down. Uh, The tourism industry is particularly uh, heavily hit. Um, I mean, the protests are taking an economic toll, and trust in the police is at an all-time low. But it's a crisis that was started by our government, and they seem completely inflexible in terms of their response. All they seem to be able to do is to escalate the police use of force, which then infuriates the protesters even more, and the whole cycle just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, I I don't know if it's because our government is incapable, incompetent, or there's orders from above, but that's the situation right now. So I I thought it would be relatively quiet, uh, and as I made my way towards the university, the, the only remaining tunnel... Uh, that gave access to the Chim Sai Choi area was blockaded. So I had to walk down to the Cross Harbor Tunnel, which had been shut down, and basically walk across what is normally one of the busiest roads in Hong Kong, but it was completely empty. So that was kind of surreal, because you normally don't get that close to the uh, the toll booths in the tunnel. And when I walked through and back to the area where I was on the Thursday... Uh, there were there were blockades, there were fences set up everywhere, but it seemed pretty quiet. So I, I walked through and 
because I couldn't get through to the main road, I looped around the science museum, which is across from the Polytechnic University. And my plan was to go around the science museum, take a footbridge over into Chim Sa Choi, which is uh, a big tourist area. There's lots of camera shops there. It's a cool place. Uh, but again, this morning it was a, a, a ghost town. But this morning turned out to not be that quiet. I, I turned around a corner uh, around the science museum and was confronted by about maybe a dozen people holding their shirts up to their faces and running away. And I thought, ooh, that's not good. And then I looked up and just a massive cloud of tear gas hit me in the face. And up until now, I had been pretty good about avoiding tear gas. Uh, the closest I got before was when the police came and tear gassed my, my neighborhood after a memorial was set up to the student who died. Uh, but I was, I was, the wind was blowing away from me during that tear gassing. So I didn't really get, um, get hit by it. This time it was straight in your face. And hopefully the majority of listeners have not been tear gassed before, uh, because it is not a pleasant experience. The, the thing that shocked me the most about it was how quickly it hits you. It doesn't have as much of an odor as I thought. It smells kind of like a, a sort of burnt vinegar is how I would describe it. But it hits you instantly. And within, within a second, your, your eyes start drying up and itching uncontrollably. Uh, your nose feels incredibly irritated. It's like all the fluids in your eye and, and nose get sucked out immediately. And it's a sense of dryness and irritation unlike anything I've ever felt. And it just comes on so fast that you don't have time to react. Um, so, I mean, this was my first time experiencing it. And I can't, I can't even fathom what, it was, what it's like to be the people out there who are getting hit by the stuff uh, on a fairly regular basis. And it's, it's not just protesters, you know. The police have fired so much tear gas into so many neighborhoods that there's, there's countless footage of children uh, and people going about their days getting just caught up in it. You know, there are, there are videos out there of tear gas being fired into, into restaurants accidentally. I don't know if it's accidental, but I'm going to assume so. Um, a 48-day-old child was hospitalized because he or she had inhaled tear gas uh, when their neighborhood was bombarded by police. Um, and, you know, there's a joke going around that you're not a real Hong Konger until you've been tear, tear gassed. Uh, so, you know, I guess I get to join that club now. Uh, but as I... After I sort of collected my my senses and, and sort of came to my senses after breathing in this cloud of tear gas, I stood back and I watched and I saw firsthand a battle between the protesters and the police. Uh, there were a group of raptors that were keeping the observers on the side at quite a distance. Uh, so I could only photograph from about, I don't know, 50 or 100 meters away. And all I saw was the police parked in one spot firing non-stop at the students and then the students would come out uh, try to extinguish the tear gas canisters or throw them back and then they would start hurling things at the police and you know repeat over and over and over again and finally it seemed like there was a lull in the action uh, I, had a, I had a nice chat with a reporter from Reuters there who also lived in Hong Kong and we kind of bonded over how much it sucks to get tear gassed although the reporters there the press they all have uh, gas masks so eventually I left uh, and I made my way back home because I was still sick at this point and you know getting tear gassed was not particularly helpful for, for a cold so after I got home I developed my film and I was planning on essentially spending the rest of the Sunday at home recovering when all hell broke loose. Once night fell, the police began a, an aggressive siege on the university. And it, it's at this point where I truly did not understand what they were trying to achieve because I completely understand 
for example, wanting to clear roadblocks. Uh, but I don't understand why students who are occupying their own campus um, are being trapped inside and are being attacked and constantly under siege. And there was a growing sense of foreboding here that as the police closed in on the university, uh, that this place was at risk of becoming a Tiananmen Square 2.0. There were threats of police using live rounds. Um, They were sending loads and loads of reinforcements. And there was a growing sense of panic around Hong Kong uh, about what was going to happen at the PolyU. And then I I heard sirens. um, And I realized that there was something happening in my neighborhood. So I walked over to the part of my neighborhood that that has attracted a few protests. These are mostly just local residents. Um, And I realized that what they were doing was all around the Kowloon area, uh, in in every direction around the university, people were setting up protests to try to distract the police, to try to drain their resources and draw them away from the university because people were sort of panicking at what they were seeing there. So when I went to my neighborhood, uh, the first thing that happened was I got tear gassed again. Um, because the police had fired at the protesters in my neighborhood and then just drove and uh, they drove off back towards the university. So I got there just in time to uh, get the tail end of that tear gassing. But then I, I stood around and I observed what happened and it was both surreal and kind of heartbreaking uh, because it was really clear that these were residents. What they were trying to accomplish was this police distraction and what I saw was they had set up roadblocks and they were trying to get the police to come back down to the area. And as I went up onto a footbridge, I saw people from all walks of life, people who had clearly just come back from work, um, people not wearing masks, uh, elderly people, children with their mothers, uh, just a bunch of normal people walking around. But a huge percentage of them were carrying bricks and they were bringing them up to the footbridges. And I realized that what they were trying to do was they were trying to get the police there and set up a clash that all of these ordinary people on the streets were prepared to put themselves at risk and hurl bricks at the police to try to diminish their ability to crack down on the students. And that was... I I don't know how to describe my emotions at seeing that. It was just... You you never think that you're going to see that kind of thing happen. Um, but here we were, you know, residents in my neighborhood ready to go. And the police eventually did show up, but they confronted the roadblock and very quickly left. At this point, after the police left, all of the protesters in my neighborhood reconvened. And they were trying to figure out what their next step would be. And it was really clear that everyone was trying to figure out a way to help the students. You know, there was people bringing supplies, but all of the arteries had been choked off by the police. And I saw the crowd start making their way up the road towards the university. And they promptly got tear gassed. Uh, I was far enough away to avoid it this time. But my my Chinese is not good enough to um, risk going up to the front lines and photographing what's going on because if things get crazy, uh, it, it is pretty hard for me to navigate my way out by sort of communicating with people I, just as a language barrier. So I thought it, it's, it's not worth the risk for me to photograph this clash, so I'm going to go back home and watch it. Um, and I went back home and just observed in horror as... You know, over and over again, people were trying as as much as they could to just pre- save the students. It, there's a there's a chant that's been happening in Hong Kong um, at every protest, and it's it's evolved. Uh, the first iteration of the chant was "Hong Kongers add oil," which means kind of don't give up, keep going. That turned into "Hong Kongers resist" after the government imposed a mask ban. Uh, which then evolved to Hong Kongers get revenge after the death of the first student. And tonight, it 
evolved again and it became Hong Kongers were coming to save you. And I mean, it's, it's powerful hearing, hearing people chant that as they make their way towards what looks like a war zone. I, I watched the rest of the night from, from my house. Uh, and I, I fell asleep in my chair woke up at three in the morning to an incredible neck ache. Um, but wow. Then we came to today. Uh, no, sorry. Yesterday, Monday, November 18th in the morning, the siege was still ongoing and I made my way back towards the university, but the riot police were everywhere they had cut off every conceivable artery towards the university and so i i made a huge loop around uh to the waterfront past the eastern Choi area to get into a sort of nearby touristy area um with a lot of hotels so i had to cross a footbridge to get into there and all i saw there was police they were they were everywhere they were patrolling back and forth um there were hundreds of them and they were basically trying to prevent people from getting near the university to help. And they were also trying to arrest anyone who they thought was escaping or coming out of the university. And I saw about 100 people get arrested uh, that morning. Just, just by riot police thinking that they looked too young, uh, essentially. And as I photographed this this police operation, um, there was constant action. There were groups of raptors that were running back and forth uh, and intercepting anyone who they thought just looked like they might be sympathetic to the protesters. There were local uh, workers who worked in the area just watching from the sidelines. Um, some of them were yelling at the police because they had witnessed them arresting people who weren't doing anything. And it was it it was very it was a weird atmosphere because people were trying to go about their daily lives but it was impossible because i mean there's cops everywhere so i i watched and i photographed this for a while and one of my favorite moments was a uh, favorite is a weird way to put it but there was one very odd moment where there was a woman sitting on a bench looking at her phone and she had the most fed up expression on her face there was a group of about a dozen riot police and raptors behind her searching a couple of young people. Um, and then in front of her, there were a couple dozen uh, protesters. No, not protesters. A couple dozen, sorry, just people in the area who were, you know, observing the scene and, you know, criticizing the police for, for just arresting these kids. Then I saw the police bring in a bus and start loading people onto this bus, which is always, you know, it's not a good sight. Uh, as I made my way around, I walked up onto a footbridge that gave me a bit of a view of the main clash point between PolyU and the university, uh, PolyU and the police. And I saw a group of police constantly raising their blue flag, which is a flag that is a warning for unauthorized assembly. Um, and it, it often precedes the black flag, which is the tear gas flag. So at this point, they're basically trying to clear all of the streets in Chim Sa Choi. Um, I saw them raise the blue flag at a family of three. Uh, it was a South Asian family, a father, a mother, and their sort of three-year-old daughter, who I saw just running for their lives after the police raised this flag at them. I mean, this family had just come downstairs from you know their apartment onto their street and then been accused of unauthorized assembly and told to leave. Um, it was fairly surreal. And then I turned around and I saw an armored vehicle uh, and a water cannon and police reinforcements coming over. And it was, it looked like a war zone. It, it the streets were uh, completely empty and covered in debris and bricks and the police were fully armored, patrolling up and down with rifles. And it, it didn't look recognizable to me as, as Hong Kong. Uh, so I left. I went back home, developed my film, 
and I was shooting Trix at this point, by the way, because I had run out of Kentmere. And and then I continued to watch, and what happened the night before happened again, where tens of thousands of people this time, uh, some were taking the ferry over from Central, and others were pushing forward in all directions, trying to get to the university. There were some heartbreaking sights. There was a group of a couple of hundred parents uh, who were sitting near the footbridge, the closest they could get to the university, just begging the police to not kill their children. And the protesters uh, were... I mean, most of the, the students were still blockaded in the university. They were The police were rounding up first aiders at this point. They were intercepting press. Uh, they weren't letting any reporters near. They weren't letting any medical uh, practitioners near. And it was really horrifying trying to figure out why do they not want people to see what they're doing? Why won't they let, you know, ambulances in? Um, and so the the clashes got increasingly violent as ordinary citizens, it seemed, from every direction were trying to surround the police the way that they had surrounded the university uh, and therefore draw them away and basically do battle with them in order to protect the kids. And then we started to see scenes of, you know, kids trying to escape the university in lots of different ways. The police at one point said, okay, we'll open up one exit for you if you want to leave. Uh, but then a bunch of students tried to leave through that exit and they tear gassed them. Um, and they went back into the university. So the most surreal scene was like something out of a James Bond movie. There was a road where um, a, a rope had been dangled over a footbridge and students were, were abseiling. They were sliding down this rope onto the road where then residents with motorcycles were rushing in to pick them up. Um, and this went on for a while before the police caught on to it uh, and blocked off that road. But, I mean, the kids had no escape and it was, it was utter mayhem. And that went on through the night until finally... The, it seemed like the university ran out of water. Um, hundreds of people had been beaten by the cops. There was blood everywhere. And the scenes coming out of last night were, are, are, are horrific. But this morning, uh, the, the siege of the university seems to finally have come to an end. Uh, the government made what I, I think is a fairly horrifying statement where they said, they were willing to be humane to the protesters who were under 18 uh, and let them leave as long as they registered themselves with the police as they left. Uh, what that means for everyone else who's over 18, I don't know. But they, they arrested hundreds of people and, you know, we don't know where they've gone. So at this point, the siege of the Polytechnic is over. Uh, well, mostly over. The, the roads are still in disrepair. Um, the city is kind of in shock. And the messaging coming out of China is increasingly hawkish and increasingly belligerent. And at this point, you know, it's a city divided. Uh, there are a huge number of residents who hate what the protesters are doing. Um, and you know, are just understandably furious at the disruption to their daily lives. Uh, then there are those who stand with the protesters and don't want to see, you know, this great city, Hong Kong, uh, be trampled by increasing encroachment of the Chinese central government. And at this point, I, I don't know. I'm going to start to bring this to an end because I don't know where we go from here. Uh, it's relatively quiet this morning. Everyone seems to be in shock. Uh, I'm not aware of any ongoing activities right now, but the the things I've seen this week have given... Uh, you know, I've, I've lived my whole life in Canada and Hong Kong, two relatively peaceful, stable areas, 
So I've never seen this kind of unrest and strife before. Uh, and you have people on all sides who are unwilling to back down, uh, unwilling to negotiate. And I mean, I think at this point, we just have to wait and see what happens. If you're, if you're listening to this, or if you're still listening to this, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, please keep your eyes on what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, the, it's too easy these days with the flood of information that we get to get desensitized to the constant stream of horrible news. Uh, but what's happening here is unprecedented. And as soon as the world starts to ignore what's happening in Hong Kong, uh, that is when I think all is lost. So I hope you, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but I hope you, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. That was that was my week. I hope you've had a significantly better week. Uh, and if we sort out our internet connectivity issues, hopefully we will speak again soon. Thanks, guys. Oh